Hello, welcome to the Science of Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Dr. Maya Fjastad. Maya is a former State Secretary of Health in Sweden. Prior to that, she was State Secretary also in the Prime Minister's Office. She's now a research affiliate in the Karolinska Institute's Centre for Health Crises. She has a background in technology research, and she's also worked as Head of Social Policy in the Swedish Municipal Workers' Union. So, Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay, now I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway so that the listeners can can let it sink in. When exactly were you State Secretary for Health in Sweden? Uh, I was appointed in January 2019 and I quit office in October 2022. So this was during a, a famous virus in Sweden. Yeah, well, not, not just in Sweden. I think that may ring a bell for non-Swedish people too. A very interesting time to be in charge of national health policy. Indeed, indeed. How did it come about? How did you get appointed? It's one of these interesting, I think, appointments that you never really know what happens. Uh, and uh, in the background, you, you don't apply for a job as state secretary, at least not in Sweden. You just get a call, uh, probably a late evening for someone asking you to to uh, answer within four hours and, and they ask you to answer yes. So <laughs> I actually don't know what happened you know, behind the, the scenes, but that was the part that I saw. Really? So it just came out of the blue and you were never curious enough to ask anyone, why me? But I had a long uh, engagement in the party and uh, especially 2014, I was uh, surprised, I think, even though because it's a limited number of positions, of course, as state secretary. In 2018, I'd been state secretary previously, um, but it's, uh, no, you never really know. And they pick from a, a number of people that they think are qualified, I guess. And sometimes you fit the puzzle and sometimes you don't. Yeah, I'm sure. But so so what were your qualifications? I mean, you have a scientific background, right? It's interesting. It, it's not one of these jobs that you really qualify for. So, I mean, I guess you could argue that I all the qualifications are none. But uh, <laughs> my, my background is in engineering, really. I'm a, a Master of Science in Engineering Physics. And I wrote my PhD in History of Science which I guess is relevant pretty much for, for everything or, or nothing. But um, and then I had a, a tenure track career as an associate professor at the Swedish University. Um, but I think an important point is that you're not scientifically qualified to be state secretary. You, you're sort of a placeholder to, to represent the general public or to represent the, the voters or the parliament. I mean, you're not elected. It's a, it's a job as a political civil servant, but you have to see yourself as a representative for, for the parliamentary majority, I think, and not to think too much of yourself. People do that sometimes that it, it doesn't tend to end happily, I think. Hmm. Well, there may be a, a better question. I mean, you said you were, you, you were involved in politics before, so it wasn't completely new to you, but still you were coming out of academia into a pretty senior political position. How ready were you for that job? I think it's, um, I think I was ready in many ways. On the other hand, you never really know what happens as state secretary, as, as was proven to me, I guess. I thought I would work a lot with digitalization of healthcare. And uh, I was very enthusiastic to go into health policy with an engineer background. I mean, a, a lot of what's happening in health right now has to do with, with technology. 
And I remember one of my, my early weeks as a state secretary, I was speaking to um, the Swedish Medical Society, the Society for, for Medical Doctors. And, and I thought I was like making a joke and saying like, hi, I'm new. I don't know anything about medicine, but I know lots about technology. And I thought that was, you know, a nice and, and, and way to, to open a conference. And, and I had this 200 hostile eyes looking at me like, did she say she knows nothing about medicine? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you were probably like the fifth state secretary in a row to address them and say, hey, be nice to me. I know nothing about medicine. Yeah, I guess I can understand that. They're still at it. But I, on, on the other hand, of course, it's interesting. Another question could be, I, I, I have no background in, in political science. Many people have. And I sort of had to, to learn how the state works in the hard way. Of course, you know, some, sometime back in high school, I did, I did have social science, but, but that was a long time ago. And, and I really had to do a lot of Googling in the beginning, working in the government office. Like, how does parliament work? What is a parliament committee? But it worked. Thank you, Google. It worked out. <laughs> yeah. And of course, these days it would be, it would be chat GPT doing the same job. It's interesting. I mean, in some other countries, I'm most familiar with systems like in the UK, where most, ministers, state secretaries are like already members of parliament or else they're career civil servants, but then these are not usually political appointees. So this idea of, you know, political appointee being pulled out of a university career and plonked down in government, I can imagine that would be a bit of a shock to the system. No, that's true. There, there are different systems in different countries. On the other hand, in, in all countries, I think there is a, a group of of uh, political civil servants, or in most countries at least, that are not appointed. And that is, of course, an important part also, I think, of, of the government system. And it's important to make sure that they are picked in good ways and that they have good qualifications and that they have the right amount of power, not too much, not too little, I guess. Yes, indeed. And judging from what you said, also, not too much and not too little technical background in the area that they're responsible for. I suppose, yeah. We don't need to talk in a lot of detail about the Swedish policy response to COVID in general. I mean, that's been covered a lot of times everywhere, including on this podcast. I am sure it'll come up. But I'm more interested now in the science advice side of it, your experience of the links between science and policy rather than like the grand sweep of the policy in general and the health outcomes. So what kinds of scientific advice did you have access to in this job? What, what, what did you think of it? How did it match up to what you needed? Well, it's the Swedish system is, is somewhat original, I think, in Europe. I mean, there are got a lot of similarities, but we have a, a system of very independent agencies and that was constructed in the 17th century and, and still, uh, still going strong. And there's a lot of benefits with this. I think it sort of builds in a lot of integrity in the system. And we also had our contagious matter law that was decided in uh, 2004. It was also, I think it, it had a lot of interesting formulations uh, that, for example, um, ways of, of fighting an epidemic had to be based on, on uh, uh, proof and scientific evidence. And that made also the agency have a lot of influence. Of course, the, the agency is also in many ways governed by the ministry, but it really did point out scientific evidence as an important part. So I would say that the agency is an important part of the science advice system. But also the Swedish uh, system of public inquiries and, and committees of inquiry is generally a, a good way of, of a policy advice or, or science to policy. But during a crisis, there isn't really time to appoint a, a public committee. So I, I actually thought there was a, a lack of, of uh, help or a lack of science advice. I, I sometimes felt 
a bit lonely in that. I, I spent a lot of my evenings uh, looking at Lancet and like, okay, so there's a lot of new articles, which is the most relevant. And um, in the end, I also organized a, a series of, of scientific dialogues or, or seminars because I felt that I, I need closer ties to the universities. Right. So so what exactly do you think was missing then? I mean, you say you had to set up these um, seminars to get the advice you needed uh, so that you didn't have to sit up all night reading The Lancet. But how would you have liked things to be organised to make them more fit for purpose for your job? Yeah, I think, I mean, afterwards, it's sort of a, a therapeutic way of, of handling all these years. I've been looking a lot into different ways of organising uh, science advice. And, and of course, uh, uh, without uh, complimenting your organization too much. I think it's interestingly organized, for example, in, in the European system with uh, independent advisors and also possibility to reach out to a number of advisors. Uh, we have committees uh, organized mainly under the the Ministry of Education with science advice, but, but it's not always the Ministry of Education that needs science advice. I mean, many other parts of, of the system needs that as well. Okay, well, hold on. So it's under the Ministry of Education because it's linked to research, because yeah, of the researchers. but not only research policy is in need of science advice. And, and I think that's interesting. And also uh, to find a good way of, of speaking to many different researchers. I think that is interesting because, I mean, as a well-discussed topic in your podcast, of course, is how to avoid bias in science advice, how to reach out to a broad number of science advisors. That is also difficult if you sort of have a, a standing committee with 10 researchers that are supposed to answer all the questions. Yeah. I think another uh, feature of, of science advice in a crisis is that uh, during normal times, I guess that policy can be expected to do some sort of vetting. I mean, is this a good, is this article published in a good journal? Is this a well-respected professor? But during a crisis, a policymaker cannot be expected to do some sort of vetting or due diligence of, of science advice. That has to be done in advance. And I struggled a little bit with that as well. I think that's an interesting uh, aspect. So in the context of this crisis situation in which you found yourself in... 2020 and 2021. It sounds like the access to scientists that you had in that position was not everything you needed it to be. Is that fair to say? No, not really. I mean, we have and had fantastic agencies, but I think I would have wanted an easier way to reach out to scientists. And I think I was a little bit hesitant to, I mean, I could, of course, just call the university headmaster, but then, you know, if you call one university and not the other one, it's going to be bad feelings between the universities. <laughs> and and I think that um, the university struggled a little bit as well. Like, how do we give good science advice in this situation? How can we construct incentives for the researchers to write policy briefs or some rapid response papers that is not well covered in a normal university life? So I think that that's a, a lesson for the universities as well. Yeah, indeed. Another thing I think is, is to have a good balance of science advice. How do we get the, the best researchers to reach out to policymakers? The risk is, of course, that it's the most extrovert or the loudest researchers that are being heard in the debates. Uh, and that is also, I think, uh, an interesting part of science advice. Yeah, okay, good. So you mentioned a few different challenges, and I, I would like to drill down into those a bit more. So just on that point you just raised about balance, because if you call a random university, 
not only do you risk upsetting other universities, as you said, but you also get only this one viewpoint and you've no way to know then as a non-expert if you're getting like a mainstream view or some random outlier or whatever. Um, but then in the context of needing urgent advice in a crisis, how would you deal with that problem? How else could you go about it? You mentioned organizing some seminars. I actually uh, asked the Royal Academy of Sciences for help. And uh, in hindsight, I'm not sure that was the right way to do it, but I did. Um, they, they helped me to organize the seminar series. Um, but I think it would have been, it would have made sense to have some sort of uh, scientific council that was additional um, apart from our, I mean, committed system of, of uh, public inquiries and, and uh, expert, already existing expert groups. It would have been interesting to have some sort of broader way of reaching out. And it's also uh, another thing that I think is, is complicated sometimes is, is sort of the, the reasons why researchers reach out to politicians. It's sometimes that, you know, they're, they're concerned about something and, and that they want something changed. They want to influence policy. But I know uh, myself as a, as a researcher, I, I was really horrible at, uh, advocacy i did not give uh, good science advice i mainly just wanted to to be able to say that i met a politician and i think that's interesting as well as a politician you meet people who want to influence policy and and have some interesting advice or or points but you also meet people researchers or other groups that just want to be able to say that i met a politician they didn't listen they're stupid i did my part and and that is also uh, that is also a respectable part of democracy. I mean that that's also okay. You can also reach out to politics just to be able to say that I spoke to the Ministry of, of Health and you know they're stupid. But if you really do want to influence policy, then you have to give science advice that is in some way tailored to to the listener. And I know I never did that as a researcher. But huh. now, well, you mentioned advocacy and how it's part of a healthy democracy that it can happen even if the politicians, as it were, don't want to hear it or, or can't deliver what's being advocated. I mean, fair enough. But it seemed like you were also connecting the two, science advice and advocacy. I wonder if you could say a bit more about that. Because I think there are some people who'd say, well, hang on a minute, providing scientific evidence for policymaking is very different from advocacy. I mean, clearly scientists do advocacy, or they can, but do you think they're doing advocacy whenever they're giving scientific advice? That's uh, that's interesting. I think they, they can be rather different, but they can also be the same. I mean, if you're concerned about something, say global warming, then you definitely want to, to do advocacy. You want to reach out to the politicians. You want to, to uh, influence uh, policy. On the other hand, it's uh, part of advocacy is also sort of raising public concern or, or creating a political legitimacy for, for action. Um, for example, as a politician, you, you meet groups that say that, okay, so you have to invest uh, 10 billion euros in um, civil defense. And the answer is that, look, there's no democratic support for that. Parliament will never support that type of bill. There's no support for raising taxes by 10% or that would be in the entire defense budget, for example. I, I have no possibility of doing that. And then either this group is satisfied and say, okay, so I said it and, you know, this is your problem. Uh, or the group would say, okay, I understand. We cannot, you know, completely cut down uh, social security just to do this. Or, you know, pharmaceuticals should be free. And then I say, okay, that's 3 billion euros. It, it's not possible, but can we do something that meets that? Uh, can we make uh, pharmaceuticals uh, free for children? 
but with that cost, would that be a, a, a that that kind of of ways to to actually make a suggestion uh, possible to to implement in policy? And uh, I think I think it's completely respectable that that scientists want to do advocacy because they often have very strong. I mean, that's why you go into science, isn't it? That you want to change the world. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I agree it's respectable for scientists to do advocacy. I just wonder whether there's a distinction, a useful distinction between that kind of thing, you know, wanting to change the world and the separate work of giving scientific evidence to policymakers. I mean, I wonder if one thing you were kind of hinting at a moment ago was this difference between where the momentum comes from. So, for instance, is it a policymaker asking for evidence to support them or is it a scientist campaigning? Or maybe it's more about the fact that, I mean, I think some of the things you mentioned are the kinds of things that I suspect some science advisors would shy away from, Uh, perhaps those who are embedded in institutional systems of science advice, like having a lively debate with a policymaker about the rights and wrongs of a decision they've made or are going to make. A science advisor might say, yeah, it's my role to present the evidence and to explain it, and maybe also to indicate some of the implications of the evidence for policy or the implications of the policy options based on the evidence but it's not my role to to pick a lane you know to campaign for a particular policy change that, that's interesting it's very individual i think uh, where scientists sort of end up on this scale and but i also think that there's a risk of, of looking at science advisors of one-way communication that a policymaker is like, oh, this is difficult. I have to reach out to the scientific community. Can you give me advice on this? I think that that's a bit old-fashioned, right? <laughs> it's, it's important that science advice can, um, that the initiative can come from the scientific side. Yeah, okay. Another challenge you mentioned when you were describing your challenges in the job was this thing about interpretation, so so synthesis. Because in a way, Sweden was lucky. I mean, you might have got hostile looks from the medics, but actually you did have a scientific background, at least, right? You had a PhD in the history of science. You knew how things worked. You could stay up late and read The Lancet and kind of understand it. And that's not given for any ministerial position. In fact, it's quite rare. So for that reason, like an important role for science advisors is often to be the bridge between the scientific community in all its diversity and complexity and so on, uh, and the specific needs of the policymaker right there and then. And if you're lucky enough to have a policymaker who can do that job themselves, then great, but I do think that's rare. So did you have someone to do that role? Was that what you were looking for when you held these seminars or, or called up universities, for instance? Well, yes and no, I guess. I mean, our agencies are in some way that, and also the ministry is in some way that. I guess the the feature of a crisis is that that everything is, is so tight. I mean, no one has has spare time to to put together a few extra articles. And I think that, I mean, if we're looking at some sort of knowledge broker system, that is definitely interesting. I mean, to have some sort of of rapid reviews written, I. That is something that that I that there would be a demand for, I think, in a time of crisis. And I think it's also interesting: is there a point of having a state secretary with a PhD in, in history of science in a crisis? I don't know, actually. And, and I think that's that's an interesting part of of self assessment. Did that matter? Well, I think that the, the way that mattered it, it most importantly is that I am, well, I'm very respectless to science. I'm never afraid of someone with a the nice uh, professor title. I, I'm never afraid to call someone. Actually, many times in my 
political life, I, you know, if I wonder something, I call the university switchboard and I say, but can you just uh, you know, connect me to someone that works on air pollution? And they do, right? That's f- it's a fantastic switchboard. And, and I think that to be respectless to science, I think that's the main feature of having a PhD. But actually, it's not very much of my knowledge, possibly, that I've used. Uh, it's it's nice to have a title and it's good to have no respect for scientific work, but that's it, I think. <laughs> well, I saw with a PhD in, in philosophy, I can definitely get on board with this idea that it's the soft skills that matter and not the content. I mean, that's what they kept telling us at university anyway. My computer science friends never seem to buy it. But if there ever, ever is a national history of science crisis, I hope they call me. <laughs> well, I'm sure they've got your number. Stay by your phone. <laughs> But then let's talk about informal and formal ways to get science advice, because I actually love the idea of you calling up a university switchboard, which mostly deals with, I don't know, anxious parents wondering why their 18-year-old son or daughter isn't answering their texts this week, um, and saying, hello, I'm the State Secretary of Health and I need a scientist who can tell me about, you know, whatever, the microbiology of viruses right now. It's not ideal. It works, <laughs> but it's not ideal. It's kind of fun. But, but I wonder, because I think that might raise some eyebrows among science for policy practitioners because you yeah, know I guess. the dangers that we are trying to avoid when we invent a formal science policy interface are things like among others accidentally getting the crazy professor with the mad ideas um and also like the failure of transparency because of course voters and parliament have no real idea what information you got on your random call and so they can't assess whether your actions were well grounded these kinds of things right um, but then being very practical, I wonder the extent to which you think this is any way unavoidable. I guess I'm asking, do you think there is any way you could possibly have redesigned Sweden's science for policy ecosystem so that you didn't have to occasionally rely on this kind of informal science advice, at least in a crisis? Well, it's, well first of all, I, I never... Uh, based a sort of a national reform on, on calling the university <laughs> switchboard, just so no one thinks right. I'm crazy. I'm not. It's more of a if you're looking for a fact, sometimes it's instead of googling, you can you can actually call someone. But uh, no, definitely, I I do believe in in formalizing science advice as in the same way I believe in formalizing all parts. I think of public life because. There's always, as you point at the need for transparency, I think that's utterly important. And I think that's also the point of, of having agencies giving science advice. That's also a way of, of formalizing science advice. And agencies is a part of a system where democratic responsibility can be demanded. I mean, if an agency gives completely wrong science advice, you, you can uh, fire the the director general, that you can, you know, you know, you can shut down the agency. You can do things. You can make the minister resign. But if a group of, you know, if someone in the university situation said, "Oh, okay, I was wrong," and nothing happens, I mean, it's important to find ways of the general public to be able to demand responsibility. And there's also, I think, there's always a risk of of corruption in all parts of government, and I think that has to be addressed. And although I really. I like the idea of, of creating informal areas for scientists and policymakers. And I, I like that idea, I think, mostly because I think that too many politicians are, are afraid of, of science or, or have too much respect or tend to look at universities as, as very closed worlds, but they're not. I mean, they, they love to give science advice, but those informal areas are not ideal for giving science advice. They are ideal for, for making the groups understand each other's. But I do believe in formal system of science advice because it's not supposed to be on a friendly basis. You're not supposed to 
to call someone you know, it's supposed to be in a system because uh, the, the general public parliament has the right to know where information comes. Yeah. Okay, good. So my question was, do you think that kind of thing can be eliminated altogether? I mean, like in principle, could you make a formal mechanism so effective that the informal stuff was just not necessary? I don't think it, it has to be necessary. I think it would be really good if it's not necessary. Uh, there's actually a, a number of articles in History of Science written about how how the friendship of, of um politicians and uh, physicists during the 1950s and 60s was influential in Swedish nuclear power development. Uh, Tage Lander, famous Swedish prime minister, had studied in Lund uh, physics, for example. And that is sort of the opposite of democracy, without criticizing 1950s too much. <laughs> A wonderful decade in many other ways. But uh, we, we don't want that. We don't want important democratic decisions being taken on the basis that some politicians had the privilege of, of studying at universities. Mother, many other politicians do not, and they're just as good politicians anyway. So uh, I think it would be better if the informal contacts are not necessary, uh, although I think it's also important that we don't treat the two arenas as completely you know, different worlds. There are, these are worlds that need to meet, but it doesn't have to be a part of science advice. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, I can see that there's value in making space for informal contact so that scientists and politicians can be like exposed to each other's worlds and, and come to feel more comfortable dealing with each other. Um, that could help, as it were, then like grease the wheels of the more formalized system, which can still give you the accountability and the structure that you want. All right. So one other question I wanted to ask you, given your very special experience um, from your insider perspective, as it were, do you feel like you or your government more broadly were able to, quote unquote, follow the scientific advice that you received during COVID? I know the idea of following the advice is a, is complicated, but just very broadly, did you have the political room, and I don't know, also the will maybe, to really enact policies that were scientifically well informed during COVID? I think that that was actually in many ways implemented in the system in the way that the contagious matter law was based on um, advice from the uh, public health agency. And the public health agency uh, really took responsibility of giving science advice and also advising on on what not to do. And I think uh, uh, without getting too much into Swedish COVID response, for example, uh, that I think the main difference really between Swedish uh, COVID response in other European countries was that we did not close the schools in the first wave of COVID. And the reason we didn't do that was, um, I mean, it would have been easier to do as the rest of Europe, of course, that would have been less politically risk, there would have been less political risk to to close schools and do like everyone else. But, but the reason we were able to keep the schools open were that the public health agency were uh, very convinced also that um, the health effects of children would be greater in closing schools uh, than to keep schools open. And I think that is that uh, was a, that was a risky political time for us, for the government. But but I think the possibility to be, uh, I think that the Minister of Education made a brave decision in trusting that and that um, courage was made possible uh, in the construction of the system. 
That's extremely interesting. What do you mean by the construction of the system? I mean, do you mean the legal weight that science has according to the law that you mentioned or the availability of the advice or, or, or something else? Yeah, I think it's, it's sort of, I think there's sort of a governance architecture. And uh, I think that the response to COVID of every, uh, every other country has sort of a response to COVID being uh, constructed of different things. And, and some aspects are, are cultural and some aspects are, but how did the virus hit and, and how is the health system and other parts is sort of how, how is, how is governance constructed uh, in that country? Mm-hmm. What about uh, public communication, bringing the public with you? Was that part of your role too, to like explain what was going on? I think that's a great part of being a state secretary is that you don't have to be on TV. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can work behind the scenes and, and you get to do all the fun stuff to, you know, create reforms and laws and, and you don't have to be this public. But of course, I mean, communication is it's much more than, than being on TV or, or being on Instagram. Uh, communication is a part of policy and, and I was part of uh, designing communication. And I think that is interesting. And, and I think that's a difference really in the corona crisis and, and some other crises. Is if there's an earthquake or if there's a great fire, communication is often like stay calm, we have everything under control, uh, a fire brigade is coming. But during the, the COVID crisis, the point of the communication was also to to make the general public behave in a particular way. If you if you do like this, the crisis will end. So part of ending the crisis, of handling the crisis, was actually how the general public behaved. And that's actually, a, a, there's a bit of a difference in, in that part of crisis communication. And I think that communication during the COVID crisis really showed that, that it was possible to have a, a, a communication with the general public, uh, to have a complicated communication with the general public. We let the public health agency do a lot of, of the press conferences, for example, I think in aftermath, that was actually one of our, our good decisions because they really could communicate in a scientific way and they could say, we don't know this, we know this, this is likely, this is unlikely. We think that this is the best way of doing now. Tomorrow we might have other knowledge and then the recommendations will change and that, that actually works. So you can actually have the expectations on the general public to understand complex messages and that the... Um, the number of people that followed the Swedish recommendations was astounding, I think. It didn't need to be illegal to go to, to a restaurant or to a pop date. People didn't do that anyway uh, with the communication that was informing them not to. Yeah, that makes sense. But then in other countries where communication was led by an agency or by a chief scientific advisor or whatever, we saw some blowback. Generally, not initially, but as the pandemic wore on, with politicians being seen as like dodging their responsibilities or delegating their role in communication to scientists. Because, of course, the scientists are not the ones who make the final calls, right? Was there any of that narrative in Sweden? Was there any narrative along the lines of why are you letting the scientists take all the flack while you, not you personally, but, you know, you, the political class, are hiding behind them? No, I think that that's a very interesting aspect. And, and yes, there was such a debate. And I think it's it's definitely an issue that's that's worth highlighting because uh, there might in, in every crisis or in every part of, of, of society or politics be a temptation for a politician to delegate responsibility to a scientific advisor to an agency. Of course, it's important to know in politics, you can never do that. There's the, the only person that can be held 
responsible is an elected politician. I mean, if you delegate uh, a responsibility, you still have to take responsibility for the construction, um, especially, I think, in, in these matters. Of course, there are other matters where you delegate responsibility to safeguard integrity. I think, uh, for example, central banks would be one of these uh, examples. Pricing of pharmaceuticals would be one of these examples that are in many countries being handled by independent bodies. And there's, of course, an interesting balance, which decisions should be taken completely independently by by an independent body, like, like interest rate decisions and central banks, and which in which decisions can you seek scientific advice and then take a political decision? I think there's, I think every politician should be aware of that there can be a, this temptation of delegating responsibility and that is never possible. Uh, on the other hand, it's important to find how to not be populistic during a crisis. I think that's interesting. How can you refrain from populism? And sometimes it is by having a close relationship to science, but not always. <laughs> and, and not to be short-sighted, not to do quick decisions just to, you know, look like, look decisive on TV. Uh, on the other hand, not delegating responsibility. I think that's a, that's a question every politician should, should ask themselves every day, pretty much, actually. Yeah. I think that's a very, uh, a very nuanced answer. Do you think it went too far during COVID? Do you think that was a general delegation of, of political power to science advice? Ugh. Well, I mean, I know expert. I think it varies a lot from country to country. And I think mm -hmm. in many places, you actually got both complaints simultaneously. You know, both the government is ignoring the scientists and doing what it thinks. And at the same time, the government is hiding behind the scientists and, and shirking their responsibilities. I think one thing I've heard said a lot in the aftermath of all this by people who think about what we can learn for science advice is that whatever setup you have, however you divide the responsibilities between you know, the executive and the scientific community, it should be clear. People should know what's being communicated as scientific evidence and what's being decided based on it and where that line is drawn between the different actors. And I think where that line gets blurry, where that boundary gets blurry, sometimes scientists can end up feeling a bit hung out to dry if it's not clear to the public that it wasn't their fault, you know, if something happened that was unpopular at the time or indeed turns out to have been a bad call with hindsight. Mm. I mean, like you said, the politician at the end of the day should never really feel able to abdicate responsibility. The book stops with them because they're the ones whose job is to be accountable. No, that's true. I think there's an interesting example, actually, from the 1970s in Sweden. And uh, I'll see if I remember this uh, correctly, but during the early 1970s, there was a, a right-wing government and it was the first time for many years there was, a, you know, Sweden has been a social democratic country for many, many years. But this um, right-wing government was divided on the issue of uh, nuclear power. And uh, the head of this uh, government, Tobin Fordin, the prime minister, he had been elected very much on being opposed to nuclear power, although the rest of the parties in, in the coalition government was pro-nuclear power. And uh, this, of course, uh, the, the, this government needed to handle this conflict. And, and that's also part of politics, uh, nothing uh, you know, particular about that. But the government decided that the reactors that were already built could only be loaded with fuel if it was proven that there was a completely sure solution for nuclear waste. 
Okay, so that's the law. So what is a completely uh, safe uh, solution for nuclear waste? Of course, when you ask, uh, then you go and ask the scientific community and they're like, oh, so this is a pretty good solution for nuclear waste. Yes, but it is, com- is it completely safe? You know, c- it's a kind of language that that scientist would refrain from. And, yeah. and I can understand, yeah. I can really see the temptation in the in the government room. Like, okay, let's just, let this completely safe solution. Okay, can everyone agree? Okay, very good. So... I can understand the temptation to delegate this responsibility and, and to say that, okay, so oh, Professor Nielsen over here, he said it's completely safe, so let's do it. Uh, on the other hand, it, it obviously didn't work. You know, the, the scientists refused to say that, and, and in the end, the, the government had to resign, and, and this was uh, one of the large political sort of turbulences in the 1970s. And I think we, we are uh, putting ourselves in this situation again and again, aren't we? Both politicians and, and scientists that we want to, to reach out and to have an answer, but we, we ask the question in the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, don't ask a scientist to guarantee 100% certainty, right? You have to understand enough about what science can and can't do to ask a question that scientifically can be answered. But I wonder, it sounds a bit more like in that case, the mismatch was not a failure of understanding, but more that they found the only position that all sides could agree on within that coalition. You know, everyone can agree to do if it's 100% safe. Sure, that's easy. But then you're stuck with <laughs> what what turns out to be an impossible requirement. But then what's the alternative? You don't want to have the scientists in the room for all these political negotiations, surely. Yes, that would definitely be, I think, to give too much power to the scientists in the room. Of course, you could have had a a public inquiry um, that would have come with a recommendation. In the end, we had a referendum on nuclear power. I don't know if that ended the right way either. But (laughs) (laughs) oh, great, yeah, referendum, famously good at resolving a a question in a sensible way. (laughs) Nothing to do with disowning responsibility at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Ask Great Britain. (laughs) Good solution. Right, yeah. Let's change the subject right now. <laughs> I want to ask how you left things for your successor or successors. It sounds like you made some changes during COVID to the science policy interface. Um, have these changes stuck around? Do you think they are long-term improvements or were they more targeted at your specific needs right then? That's interesting. That's actually a thing that I did give a lot of thought. How can I, you know, leave a better desk for, for my successor, you know, undepending on from which party? And I think I did leave a better start for my successor. And uh, in a number of ways, um, the dialogues were actually not a permanent structure. So I think they could be. Uh, I mean, vote me back and I'll fix that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did construct, when we entered office, uh, Lena Hallinger and the minister and I, we thought that the relationships to elderly research were too weak from, from the ministry. And this was before COVID. But you see, it's much easier actually to reach out to the, the medical sciences than to the social sciences or elderly research. So we constructed an elderly research council, which was a, at least a semi-permanent structure. I think that's still going on. I hope so. I think that was an important part of, of actually connecting some not so glamorous or visible parts of research uh, I also did, uh, we did rewrite the contagious matter law. We, we put a, um, together a committee of inquiry to write a new contagious matter law. I think it will be much better, actually. And I think that was sort of one of the, the things I put my heart into. How can I construct a, a better law for, for next time? Oh, that's interesting. What did you change? 
Yeah, it's. Uh, this, I think aconitidis matulor was constructed for for small tropical diseases. If someone came home from Africa with a tropical disease, it should be able to isolate them. It was not written for sort of a mass uh, epidemic. We did not have the possibility to isolate large group of people on on suspicion. I, it's it's difficult to write laws in times of peace that will cover times of war, isn't it? It's it's uh, you don't want to give the kind of power to the government or or to, I don't know, the police or or the military or whatever when you feel safe. But in a times of crisis, there's sometimes a need to to have more powerful measures in place, and I think that is reflected in in the directives to this uh, committee of inquiry. Okay, yeah, interesting. Now that's uh, that's the sort of the enigma of resilience, isn't it? How can we build legitimacy for resilience uh, when we are in, in peaceful times? Yeah, I mean, how can you make a law that's powerful enough to deal with a very tough situation, an emergency, and also still be abuse-proof? Exactly. And there will always be authoritarian forces that want to use uh, resilience or redundance and people's fear to construct laws that are too authoritarian. And you have to be careful of that too. I mean, if you look at the the, the world today, the problem is not that that governments give people too much freedom, is it? It's it's that governments give people too too little freedom. So we always have to to defend democracy and freedom, I think. And and that is uh, that's that's always a balance, I think. Yes, very well said. Um, I guess we're coming to the end of our conversation. I do want to ask you what you've been doing since you finished your work in government, uh, what you're doing now, what your plans are for the future. I, I went back into research. I am a researcher in, at the Karolinska Institutet, uh, and I do some stuff on health crisis at the Center for Health Crisis. And I also have a project on AI, which I think is a fantastic example. If you're an STS researcher, Science, Technology and Society, uh, AI is a, is a fantastic example. And uh, I'm publishing some books and I moved to Brussels. So I'm trying to understand Brussels. That's uh, that's a bit of a challenge as well. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm told that uh, in Brussels and in the European institutions and so on, uh, people from the Nordic countries are somewhat underrepresented. I always kind of assumed that it was because if you come from Sweden or Norway or Finland, why would you want to move to Belgium? But you did. Oh, thank you. I love Brussels. It's a fantastic city. I'm going to tell all the Swedes to move here, actually. It's a, it's a great place. It's sort of a, a policy nerd heaven, isn't it? There's always something interesting going on in the field of policy. Yeah, it certainly is that. Good. Well, thank you so much for this. It's been a really illuminating conversation. I will keep an eye out for your return to political stardom when Sweden faces its next <laughs> history of science crisis. In the meantime, uh, good luck in Brussels. No doubt we'll see each other around. And uh, thank you very much indeed, Dr. Maya Fjestat, for your time. Thank you. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Shushenko. <laughs>